This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, and followed by replays throughout the week. Now, the purpose of my show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. I want to understand the work of tomorrow. Last Wednesday, I crashed on my bike ride home. Don't worry, it looks like I'm healing well, and the damage done consisted primarily of some bruises and what we cyclists call road rash. But, once again, this got me thinking about emergency care. What do you do when you get hurt? Clearly, for major medical problems, you should call 911 or go to the closest emergency room. My accident was small enough that some basic supplies that my wife secured from the local CVS did the job. I'm back in the studio and even my bike is still okay. And finally, I got a great topic for a show, so nothing hurt here. The topic thus is acute care, including urgent care and emergency care. To explore this topic, I want to welcome my two wonderful guests for today. In the first half of the show, I will be talking to Dr. Jesse Pines, who is an experienced emergency care physician and a leading scholar in the field of emergency medicine. And then in the second half of the show, I will welcome Sharon Vitti, the Senior Vice President and Executive Director at the CVS Minute Clinic. At this point, welcome, Jesse. Hello, Christian. How are you? Hey, Jesse. Um, as uh, somebody who has really kind of been an experienced clinical uh, expert in the ER, uh, what does a typical workday in the clinic look like for you? Uh, so as an, as an emergency physician, uh, my typical day uh, consists of, of seeing um, uh several patients uh, of varying acuities, uh, so from critically ill patients um, who may be coming in with uh, heart attacks, strokes, and major trauma, uh, to sometimes minor cases, uh, children, adult, older adults, pretty much everyone. Um, general shift, uh, you see uh, usually between two to three patients an hour, um, you know, on, and every patient has something different. So two to three patients an hour, uh, those are 10-hour shifts or 12-hour shifts? Uh, these are eight-hour shifts, although across the industry, the, the shift length uh, tends to vary from eight to about 12 hours. And how has that work changed, if you think back? I mean, you've been in this business for a while. How has this changed when you first started to get into the field? So the, the major, th there are a number of changes that have happened. Uh, the first is technological. We've moved to uh, electronic health records, where all the information is kept centrally um, within a program that tracks the patients and, and their medical records, uh, but also over the last 10 years, there have been a lot of shifts in thinking about sort of how we take care of patients, you know, not just the medications we provide them in the emergency department, but, um, but you know, more broadly, uh, we, we think about where patients are going to follow up after they're discharged, uh, and there's, there's more focus on and moving uh, our thinking uh, past what happens at, um, to this, you know, during this visit, to what happens to the patient across settings. Now, do you feel there's a lot of talk these days about physician burnout, and I know you must be in a very stressful position. Um, do you feel that the workload has increased on you, that kind of just you're seeing more patients in less time, or has that been reasonably stable over the years? Uh, so there, there are a number of things that have happened. One is uh, that I've seen is the average acuity of patients who are coming in uh, has gone up over time, and what has driven that is uh, is that people, you know, the technology outside of medicine is keeping people alive longer. So people are getting uh, surgeries for cancer, chemotherapy, transplants. Uh, so when people come in to the emergency department, a lot of times they're sicker uh, because in, in previous years, you know, 10, 20 years ago, these people may not have survived. Now they are surviving more. Uh, with chronic illness, so when they actually come in, things are more complex, and sometimes they're they're sicker. The other thing that we've been seeing is sort of an aging of the of the population, the graying of the population, uh, you know, in the U.S. and also across the world. When people come in who are older adults, uh, a lot of times they come in with more complex conditions uh, because there, there's a lot more, you know, a lot more going on, a lot more history, um, and. Um, you know, they come in on, on more medications. So, so things are, are definitely getting more uh, stressful from, from that perspective. The, the, the other thing has been sort of the influence of, of regulation. So there's been really a, a tremendous amount more, you know, higher uh, 
levels of, of regulation uh, in terms of things that providers are required to do uh, to stay credentialed, um, to um, you know, keep up on your continuing medical education. There, there's more and more things for providers to do and more and more external requirements. And I think that the combination of sicker patients and more expectations on providers really does contribute to burnout. I just shared my story of the bike crash, and again, nothing really to worry about. But uh, even with some small bruises, I, I think I was at least at the edge of considering going to the ER. If I had gone to the local ER, you practice here at Penn yourself for, for, for many years, what would you guys have done to me? I mean, what type of, is, what would be procedure? Again, somebody comes in, uh, no head trauma, conscious, basically could ride the bike himself to the ER, but, but bruises and bleeding, what would be the procedure from the time I would present myself at the ER? So when come, someone comes into the emergency department, the, the first step is, is triage. And triage, uh, you know, is a decision-making process uh, commonly performed by nurses where they decide uh, at what priority you need to be seen. Uh, if you're having, you know, 50 years old with central chest pain and you think you may be having a heart attack, that that sort of will rise in importance. Uh, you know, come in after a bike ride with some minor bumps and scrapes, uh, no abnormal vital signs, you're otherwise a healthy guy, uh, that, that would probably be a little bit lower priority. And what happens is that uh, the, the levels of priority determine the, the order which with uh, people are seen. So let's say, you know, when, once you're, you, you, you uh, figure out where you are in the queue, uh, then you're seen uh, at some point by an emergency physician who would do a, an assessment and, and, and make, it, make some decisions uh, along with you about what specific tests may need to be ordered, if anything, and what treatments would need to be uh, implemented. You know, in your case, maybe, um, you know, it sounds like if you're walking around that probably no broken bones, but, you know, you, there, there can be, uh, you know, some, sometimes people can have broken bones that are unexpectedly broken. Uh, so may, they may recommend some x-rays. Um, also some local wound care and making sure that your, your tetanus status is up to date, that sort of thing. Is there a certain uh, just-in-case or uh, just-to-be-safe mentality in there? Would you have sent me through a CT scan though I'm walking around? Both, both you know, for my own risk, uh, I mean, it wouldn't cost me much because I'm reasonably well insured and to protect your liability? Well, so, so that's an interesting question. Um, you know, in terms of doing a CT scan, uh, you know, we like to you know, pick patients who, who, who would really benefit from those. And, and when it comes to, for example, uh, getting a, a CAT scan of the head, there are very clear decision rules uh, that have been well validated uh, that um, can be used to help, dis you know, distinguish people who, one, need an immediate head CT, and two, people who, uh, who are low risk enough based on, the cl based on clinical criteria that they, that they wouldn't need a head CT at all. Uh, and, you know, the, the challenge has been trying to, um, you know, implement those those decision rules, which have been around for uh, now 15 or 20 years now, and, and, and getting emergency physicians uh, to adhere to them, and also getting patients to understand that if they're if the decision rule says not to uh, do a CT scan, that, that it's okay not to do it, because a lot of times it's the patient who will say, you know, I, I hit my head, and even even though your you know doctor, your silly decision rule tells me that I don't need a CT scan, I still want it. Is there a little bit of gaming going on from the patient? And sometimes some of these decision rules, I would imagine, are reasonably public knowledge so that the patient knows, like, okay, if I'm coming in and I said, like, well, my knee hurts, I've got to go to the end of the line. But if I say, like, my chest hurts, I go to the front of the line? Uh, you see, I think, uh, I, I have seen that in my career. I've been an emergency physician um, for a long time. But, but it's actually much rarer than you think that people... People in general up front are pretty honest about what what brings them there. I mean, sometimes there, you know, where there's dishonesty um, is been at least I've seen is where uh, they're there for an embarrassing reason, or they they perceive that um, you know they they're having you know something you know symptoms in a very sensitive area that they may not want to tell the triage nurse. And then once they once they get to the back, it, you know, it said you know it, it said I had a headache, but this is why I'm really mm. here now that the door is closed. Now, Jesse, you know from the joint research you and I have done together that I have all the respect and admiration in the world, really, for what you and other emergency physicians do. But let's talk about money and economics and how that influences you. But 
So if you think about my bike accident and my kind of my, my bruises and my little wounds, by the time we would have done all of that, or you would have done all of that, what would have been a rough financial estimate for my visit there? That either I, if I would be uninsured, or my insurance would be paying. So I think that varies tremendously. I mean, if you look at um, you know what. We do know now, at least from the literature, is that there's tremendous variation in terms of what doctors, doctors and hospitals charge, um, and, and that, that also varies tremendously based on uh, the negotiated agreement that your uh, insurer does or, or may not have with, with, with a hospital. So, so really, you know, it, it can vary tremendously uh, from, you know, from thousands of dollars to, to very little. So I, I, I know that trick being kind of in your seat many times that whenever I get asked a question that I'm hesitant to give an answer, I say, like, well, it kind of depends. So uh, allow me in all friendship to push back a little bit. So, you know, you know my case, right? I mean, I imagine I would come to GW or to UPenn as a hospital. I have, a, you know, a private insurance, pays reasonably well. Um, and I'm seeing an expert like you. Uh, so in a use case like this, is that like uh, some, some wound care and maybe an X-ray? Is that like a $1,000 visit? Is that a $5,000 visit? Uh, I mean, again, I, I, think, I think it depends upon w- whether your insurance company has a negotiated agreement with, with the physician group and then, and then the hospital. Uh, you know, if, if it's an in-network uh, emergency uh, ED visit, um, you know the the physician fee plus the you know the hospital fee, which is called the facility fee, would, would probably probably be less than a thousand dollars, or you know, or, or could be significantly less than that. Um, if you were um, you know a, if you're a privately insured patient, I assume, but if you have uh, Medicaid insurance, uh, which is the insurance for the poor, Medicare insurance, it would be significantly less than that. Now, have you ever in your career felt like a certain pressure to make either tests because of economic reasons or to offer or deny treatment one way or the other because of business considerations? Or do, have you always felt like you were in positions where you could just do what was clinically the right decision to do? Yeah, so as a, as a, as a doctor, so I, I, serve, I serve in two roles. Uh, I, I serve as a clinician working in, in the emergency department, um, when I'm in that when I'm in that position, uh, I, economic considerations, uh, you know, in terms of what what things are going to cost, uh, that that it n- never really enters my mind. It, it's it's always about what, what what is what is best for for the patient in front of me. You know, often, you know, the, it's always a question. You know, do patients get different you know different treatment based on their insurance status? Uh, I, I, you know, in, in most cases, I wouldn't even know what, whether the patient had insurance. But before I saw them, I could, you know, certainly figure that out in the electronic health record and, and go in and figure that out. But but that but that's, you know, not not even a consideration in terms of of the best way to to treat the patient. Um, you know the. Um, you know, in you know, I recently left uh, GW, um, and uh, you know, one you know, my two last patients, uh, one one was a uh, someone who was a congressman, and then another another person who was uh, had, was mentally ill, psychotic on PCP. Who those were my you know two patients I I saw in my last shift. I mean, in, you know, my my in my mind. I'm, I'm treating those patients exactly the same with the same standards of care, regardless of who they are. Uh, now, putting on a different hat, which is now I'm the new uh, national director for clinical innovation for a large uh, physician group. Now, now, now that now that that's a little bit different, where you sort of uh, think differently about uh, how we, you know, not not just manage that patient in front of us, but how you can actually deploy emergency services to help manage a population of patients and, and how we can do that most efficiently. So, so for example, um, you know, one of the big economic drivers in emergency medicine is whether or not a patient gets admitted to the hospital. Now, you know, as a, a physician executive administrator, if I can create uh, programs that can make uh, physicians feel comfortable uh, discharging patients who who, who in in previous uh, years they, they would have admitted to the hospital uh, and and do that in a safe and efficient way where patients are, are getting good care. Now that that can potentially save money. So so the you know I think it really depends upon the hat I'm wearing. 
In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I'm chatting with Dr. Jesse Pines, who is an experienced emergency care physician and a leading scholar in the field of emergency medicine. We're talking about these follow-ups from my bike accident, and uh, since I'll be talking about expert, uh, the, the, the executive director of the Minute Clinic after uh, our session is over, Jesse, um, I was wondering about that difference between the ER and the Minute Clinic. You mentioned earlier on that the acuity and the complexity of the cases that you see in the hospital is going up over the last couple of years. Is that in part because in the, pardon the wording, in the lower end, in the lower acuity part of the market, patients now have a better substitute for care and they just would have gone to the ER in the old day, but they are now going to a minute clinic? Well, so to me, I I really don't see a lot of overlap at all between, uh, you know, traditional emergency care and then Minute clinic care, which which is it is really sort of on on the on the low end of acuity, um, and actually there was a recent study that was published uh, by some physicians out of Harvard that looked at the implementation of retail clinics uh, over the last uh, you know five ten years uh, and really found very minimal impact on the local emergency departments and there there are a number a number of reasons for that you know one is uh, the um, is that um, the the you know the the minute clinics only really take care of uh, you know a very small number of conditions. So if you have you know if you need a, a vaccine, uh, if you need your flu shot, it, you know it's a good place to go. If you've got you know ear pain, uh, sore throat, um, you know my, minor upper respiratory symptoms, things like that. Um, people uh, can can go in and be seen by a nurse practitioner um, and manage through through algorithms uh, often um, where they, they would be it would be treated with antibiotics only if they met uh, certain criteria um, and and it, so so in terms of, of uh, the 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 overlap with emergency medicine uh, you know retail clinics um, will often not see patients with Medicaid insurance uh, Medicaid insurance, uh, is the insurance for the poor, and the, the and the often people will come in with some of those same complaints, those you know earache, uh, headaches, sore throat, uh, be, because people with Medicaid often can't be seen in uh, retail or urgent care clinics because that's not covered. So a lot of times, the only option is to come into the into the emergency department for those conditions. So adding. Uh, a lot of capacity in, in the, in the uh, retail clinic space, is, you know, empirically does not have a large effect on on, on emergency department care, and that's what we've seen, um, you know, over over the over many years. So if you look, you know, on, on the margin, I think the the estimate was in your average uh, forty thousand bed emergency department that you know opening up a local retail clinic would probably increase you know would probably decrease your your uh, number of visits by about uh, 10 to 15 visits a year um, so so really it's a minimal effect so uh, do you see these folks basically creeping up the market in terms of going into higher acuity levels uh, because of you know technologies they might have the telemedicine to bring in a doctor virtually into their clinics um, do you see them basically go i mean you see this in many industries that an industry starts and an entrance starts at the low end of the market and they just as yep. they build capabilities they're creeping up do you do you see this going forward uh, the, the kind of the minimal effect do you see this going to stay this way or do you see change there yeah so so i i do see uh, you know beyond retail clinics that there are some some alternatives to emergency care that that have offered uh more services so some urgent care clinics for uh, expanded services, you can get uh, X-rays and and lab tests. Um, you know, to some degree, that that may uh, replace some emergency care. Um, in, in addition, primary care offices expanding their services, uh, what are called patient-centered medical homes, which is a a new way of, uh, or not so new at this point, but you know, it's a way of doing primary care. Uh, where, where they offer same-day appointments, um, where, where they have more resources within a primary care office to actually deliver acute care services. So I- implementing services like that uh, can potentially take away, uh, uh, you know, can b- potentially re- reduce some uh, uh, lower-acuity emergency care. Uh, but but it really, I think the predominant effect has been just the aging of the population and the increased uh, complexity of, of, of the patients we're seeing 
in the emergency department. You know, uh, you mentioned telemedicine. That, that's another area that's expanded tremendously recently. Uh, you know, telemedicine currently, it, you know, treats a lot of the lower end uh, patients, you know, the pe- people with uh, respiratory tract infections and UTIs. Um, you know, that, that, that in general doesn't, uh, doesn't compete that much with emergency departments, particularly uh, for the privately insured populations. Um, so, so, so I, th- so I think, I think in general, when you see a lot of these alternatives, um, you know, you, the, you know, the, the assumption is that if you, if you open an alternative, you will lower healthcare costs because people won't go to the emergency department. But, but empirically, what, what happens is that it, it offers better access to healthcare services for that population and, and, and the volume of every, of everything, uh, may, may go up a little bit. So you mentioned um, the concept of triage earlier on, right? Again, the yeah. patient arrives in the ER, you triage them. Uh, in your case, oftentimes the, the emergency severity index on a scale from 1 to 5, you basically measure the accuracy. Um, to the extent that there are now more options, either because of retail outlets, because of primary patient-centered medical home, emergency rooms have always been there, technology is coming in. Uh, as there are more choices available to the patient, isn't in some sense the patient starting to triage him or herself more and more? Well, what, what's so patients are, are definitely trying to triage themselves more. And one of the things we've seen um, in years, I think a big effect that we haven't talked about yet is increase in out-of-pocket costs by patients uh, that more and more um, you know, when, when people come in and, and use medical services, that they, they've got to pay uh, higher co-pays and, and more out-of-pocket costs. And, and, that, and that's something that I've certainly seen is that, that there's more, you know, cost consciousness on, on the part of the patient, um, you know, realizing that they, they may have a, a bigger bill when they, you know, not only come to the emergency department, but when, when, they, use, when they use any, any sorts of health services. So that's uh, kind of the famous sticker shock effect, either going out of the ER or not to mention utilizing an ambulance or a helicopter. Why, why, are these, why are these costs oftentimes so opaque? Again, I think part of that is this kind of this, it, it depends answer that I was kind of critiquing you earlier on, right, where basically there is like an out-of-pocket number and then all kinds of shades of gray. Uh, but, but the sticker shock for many patients is a very real problem, right? They go to the ER with an ambulance and uh, they can't afford it, right? You've, all, you've seen these cases in the news where people say, like, don't call an ambulance, I cannot afford it. Isn't that a sad state of the world? Yeah, so so the, there are a number of things that underlie that. I mean, the, there's been, uh, you know, I think just, you know, across the board, not just in emergency medicine, but the, the rising costs of, of health care uh, and rising health care prices that we've seen. Uh, and, and also, at the same time, from the insurance company perspective, the, the insurance company, uh, insurance companies are trying to, uh, trying to lower costs. Uh, and and what, one, one of the ways they try to they try to do that is, is often n- not paying for uh, these you know the for for the build services uh, and and a lot of times what you see is that um, you know sometimes that those are those are uh, passed on to the patient and people will, will get a huge bill because the you know if a patient is at a network um, or there's there's no negotiated agreement within the you know between the hospital and the and the physician group or the um, and the insurance company uh, that, that people can get really big bills. You know, th- this this I think is a huge, huge issue. Um, and ha- how do we uh, lower um, healthcare costs for individuals? You know, particularly when when they um, come into you know a hospital or a surgical center or e- even a doctor's office, and they end up with a bill that for whatever reason their insurance company is, it, it doesn't want to pay. Uh, it, you know, for for people who are. Uh, you know, who don't have a lot of economic means, it can be devastating. As an operations professor, I always love to look for some form of inefficiencies or opportunities for cost reduction, as you mentioned. Um, so in your world, you must see very large variations of demand, right? Uh, demand is inherently random in the sense that you have trauma cases, you have gunshots, you have people coming having a heart attack. Um, to what extent do you feel like there is a need for more flexibility in your capacity? Because your ER, I would imagine, is a fairly fixed staff enterprise where you cannot easily kind of scale up capacity down up and down so quickly so where where do you see the opportunities so uh, i think that you, you take a, a an emergency department like penn or, or gw that is operating at you know a hundred plus percent capacity uh where, where often they're, they're 
you know, there can be waits before you're seen. Um, in, in that system, there, there there's not a lot of room for, uh, you know, there, there's certainly room for improvements, but there's not a lot of room to add, add, you know, having the providers do more stuff because there really is not a lot of downtime. Um, but but in, the, in the remainder of the system, there are many parts of the acute care system that, that I think are, are very much underutilized. Uh, there, there's a big push toward uh, freestanding emergency centers uh, and hospital outpatient departments that often will have a lot of the same resources as an emergency department. You know, freestanding emergency centers, um, you know, may have a, a CT scan, uh, may have board-certified physicians there 24-7 to see patients. Uh, you know, often in the middle of the night in those in those places, there, there is a tremendous amount of downtime, That and, and you could you know, with the right economic model, potentially use those services um, in the middle of the night and, and try to better match better match supply and demand. Is that you an know, Uberization thing, story ultimately? Right? Is, can I Uberize emergency care? Right. Yeah. So, so I, I I think that that there's a definite potential future there, and trying to figure out where the uh, you know, you know wh where the capacity is, and trying to match that capacity and demand in real time, so that so that people don't experience waits. You know, not just for emergency services, but you know, but let's say a CT scanner. You know, this is uh, basically a you know very expensive machine that who who is you know you you can you could potentially operate it uh, 24/7 except for the downtime. How do how do we um, you know increase the utilization? Uh, of, of, a, of a CT scan, and you know you can potentially be doing uh, tests in the, in the middle of the night if you've got a tech there. Um, but so you know, can technology uh, you know be better distribute uh, the you know the active resources that are available to treat patients in real time? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. Jesse, I typically don't dare make predictions uh, about the future in my show, but I feel the world will always need great emergency physicians like you. So thank you for all the great work that you do and your colleagues do for us as patients. Thank you for being on the show. We need to take a short break right now. When we we'll come back, I will welcome my second guest of today, uh, Sharon Witte, who is Senior Vice President and Executive Director at CVS Minutes Clinic. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Terbish. Welcome back from the break. I'm Christian Terbish, and this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio here on CR6M. Today we're talking about urgent care and emergency care. In the first half of the show, I was talking to Dr. Jesse Pines, an experienced emergency care physician and a leading scholar in the field of emergency medicine. At this time, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our second guest, uh, Sharon Vitti, who is the Senior Vice President and Executive Director at CVS Minute Clinic. Welcome, Sharon. Good afternoon. Hey, Sharon, uh, talk about your background and how your uh, career may uh, advance at Minute Clinic. Sure. I, I've been in healthcare on the administrative side my whole career, and um, I've been with CVS Health probably for the last four and a half years. Um, I came out of academic medicine in a large integrated delivery system, and in there I was... Uh, um, really uh, helping with ambulatory care and helping to build out that ambulatory care continuum, especially uh, off-site and in the community. And so um, this was a natural fit um, to think about a, um, a national program of clinics of ambulatory care that not only um, is, has a broad reach but also um, is, uh, was disruptive in regards to the whole ambulatory care continuum and and adding an offer and an option um, that didn't exist uh, probably um, 10 to 12 years ago. And so that's what drew me, drew me to uh, coming to CVS Health and being a part of Minute Clinic. Tell us about the operations of the Minute Clinic and the most common indications that you see in the Minute Clinics. So um, Minute Clinic, we have uh, over 1,100 uh, clinics across uh, the country in 33 states, including the District of Columbia. And what we have is we have clinics that are um, within CVS stores um, located typically with the pharmacy. And so we don't have any other um, minute clinics except within the, the CVS stores. And the retail model really um, is thinking about, one, um, being accessible and available to patients in the communities where they live and where they frequent, like their local CVS. Um, two, we are looking at making it convenient, and so we have um, you know, broader hours than a physician's office typically will, including evenings and weekends. 
And uh, more than 50% of the population is in, within 10 miles of a clinic. So when we think about convenience and access, those are some of the key uh, value propositions. Um, <clears throat> we are run, uh, we have nurse practitioners or physician's assistants um, in the clinics providing care. And uh, so we are, um, our model is really built on, we don't have a lot of other front desk people or other infrastructure. And so our model also is built to um, create a um, affordable care um, for patients. And so uh, if you look on our website, we're very transparent about, um, you know, where we have clinics, what our wait times are in the clinics, um, what um, services we provide, and then what the cost of services are. So affordable, accessible, and um, uh, high-quality care are the um, pieces that we've uh, built the clinics on. Sharon, in my discussion with Dr. Pines, I shared my story about a unfortunate recent, recent bike accident I had. Not, nothing major, but some, you know, some bruises and some road rash. Um, we decided to go to the CVS and just buy some supplies and kind of fix me up at home. Mm-hmm. But if I had gone to a minute clinic, what would have been the workflow? I would have entered. Again, this is not somebody who is dying. I would have driven myself to the clinic. Uh, what if, would have been the workflow for me kind of registering at the <coughs> clinic? What type of care would I have gotten? So um, we, are, we are walk-in, or you could have um, uh, reserved your place in line prior to coming in. So we're trying to make that easy for patients that, like you said, maybe get off your bike and just wanted to go get care so you could walk right into Minna Clinic without an appointment. Or if you, you know, uh, wanted to do some planning, you could also go online and um, what we call hold your place in line or schedule a future visit. But you would come into the CVS and you would check in in the kiosk. The kiosk would either recognize you if you were a previous patient at Minna Clinic or you'd have to put in some pretty standard um, information about yourself. Um, to help us make sure that we um, can identify you and associate that with our electronic health record. Um, one of the key questions we ask at that time of registration is, do you have a PCP? Um, and with that, we, um, one, um, uh, would make sure, we'd ask you if you would allow us to send this information to your PCP. That's an important part of our model to make sure that we're connecting all of your care and communicating with your care team. You would come in to the, um, you would be in the waiting room if there's a wait. Um, there would be a uh, vid- video board, a visual board that would show you where you were relative to the other people waiting for um, a visit with the nurse practitioner, the PA. <clears throat> and um, it would estimate your wait time so you could, uh, you know, you could plan accordingly. You would be called in by the nurse practitioner or the PA, the physician's assistant. And um, we have uh, typically two exam rooms. And uh, within that exam room, you would, uh, they, you would sit down and the provider would um, do three components of the visit. The first component would be to um, finish off your registration, make sure that all your consents are in place, um, uh, and then would ask you, how you, you know, if you have insurance, make sure we get your insurance registered. Uh, if you're a minor, you know, we would do all of that information relative to um, your, uh, your parent being there. Um, at that point, we would then get into the visit. Uh, we would also let you know, you know, what the, if you're paying out of pocket, what the uh, average cost for the visit would be at that time. Um, obviously, if we can cover your insurance, we'd let you know at that time. And we, the majority of our patients, more than 85% of our patients have um, insurance that we take at the Minna Clinic. Um, at that point, we would switch into the, um, the, the, the medical visit. And um, the nurse practitioner or the, the physician's assistant would go through uh, very similarly to what uh, any provider would do, um, asking you about why you were here, what, um, what's going on. Um, they would uh, take a full history. Um, they would be checking your vitals, and they would be um, uh, doing the exam. And so those would be the key pieces to um, being able to diagnose and then come up with a treatment plan for the visit. Um, the next piece, so we can get in going through that, um, and they would be using um, they would be using the EHR that we have. We have an Epic, uh, the Epic system, and they would be working in conjunction with our um, clinical guidelines. So we have um, within built into Epic um, guidelines that 
help the uh, uh, nurse practitioner, the provider, and those guidelines are developed, evidence-based guidelines developed from the American Medical Association, American Academy of Family Physicians, et cetera. And that is really important because we want you to have the same experience and the same clinical care regardless of which minute clinic you're going into. So, and there would be documentation into the uh, electronic health record um, concurrent to the exam. And then the next part of the uh, visit is the last part of the visit. And that would be where the provider would be um, printing out your end-of-visit summary with all your instructions. They also, if there's a uh, script that has been written, they would be um, asking you where you would like that prescription to be sent and coordinating that part of the care. Um, and then, uh, obviously, if there's any other connections or um, uh, resources that you need to um, have uh, to support your treatment plan, they would be making sure those are in place. And then the last piece would be um, if there's any um, uh, collection of payment that is due at the end of the exam, they would be doing it at the uh, closing out of the visit. Interesting. Now, in my case, a bruised knee, some wound cleaning and wrapping it up, uh, assuming I would pay out of pocket, what would be a rough kind of price range I would be paying here? Um, so the average minute clinic visits about $100. If there's any, you know, uh, labs or uh, scripts or anything like that, that, w that would be an addition to that amount of money. Now, uh, I'm sure as, as, as somebody who does this at the, sense, uh, at the scale that you're doing it, you must have some very good time data. Do you have like a work standard time where you would say like, based on the steps that you or the app you collect along the way, the nurse practitioner should be spending 17 minutes on me? Or how, how, how do you plan your, kind of your workforce and your productivity? Well, so the workforce, we're a single provider model. In some cases, we have more than one provider where we have um, uh, higher demand. What's really important is um, how we interface with patients and how we set expectations with patients around availability of care and wait time for care. So the, um, we utilize um, uh, a waiting list that's based on what the standard times are for um, the different types of visits, and that's how we're able to predict what the wait time will be, and we are able to publish that on our website. So when we talk about the time for a visit, um, we have averages that we use, but it really is for the wait list queuing. Uh, it's less related to the, um, the, the provider productivity. So you said in the, the planning, the capacity planning for you is easy in the sense that in most cases it's a single provider yeah. there. Yep. And so in, in some sense that provider is there whether there's traffic or not, right? You're not, you're not going from one to zero. But sometimes you go from one to two, right? And you have to plan or forecast for that in advance? Yes, we do. So um, you're 100% right. We um, uh, have the clinic open, the hours that we have published. And most of our clinics are not open the exact same hours, but pretty standard. It may vary by a particular geography in regards to what time they open or what time they close. But for the most part, um, they're open 65 hours a week. And yes, um, the provider is there um, regardless of whether we have patient demand or not. Um, from an um, increased capacity, we either have historical information where we know clinics have a higher demand um, for services, and so we ramp up to meet that demand with a um, another provider, and that could be either a, um, a, a medical assistant, it could be a um, LVN, uh, a uh, limited nurse, or it could be another nurse practitioner or PA. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening on Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tavish, and I have the pleasure of sharing with uh, Sharon Vitti, who is the Senior Vice President and Executive Director at CVS Minute Clinic. Uh, Sharon, when you introduced uh, your background and your career, you used the word disruption. You were really the first to pioneer a product category that we now refer to as retail clinics. Mm -hmm. Are you, would you be offended if I, I would say that you are to hospitals what McDonald's one day was to diners and restaurants, namely affordable, consistent food without too many bells and whistles? Or is it, would that, that be something that you would kind of say, like that's kind of somewhat insulting question? <laughs> well, um, I guess I would go at it a few different ways. So one... Um, we are Joint Commission accredited. We are the only retail organization that is Joint Commission accredited. We're on our fifth at accreditation. And that is a regulatory body that accredits um, hospitals and many other healthcare organizations. So I would say, um, you know, that is, that is something between that and our quality program that, uh, to me, puts us on the same level as any other ambulatory care provider. 
I would say the other thing is consumerism. And so we can call it what we want to call it, but retail health has created another option between primary care and the emergency room. And, uh, and then urgent care has come around also as another option. And I would say um, we have made it easy for patients to get the care they need when they want it. And so, uh, you know, and there are hospitals that run retail clinics also. Um, and so I think when you think about the ambulatory care continuum, you want to, we want to meet the patients where they are. We want to create um, uh, both accessible and affordable care for them that is um, of the same quality that they would receive in any other um, ambulatory care setting, whether it be a hospital, a physician practice, um, or an urgent care. How do you see that category of retail clinics evolving? I mean, with a, a company like CVS, all the analytics, all the experience <coughs> running retail outlets, uh, the ability to cherry-pick locations, you are really in a strong position to compete here. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that I don't think there's any question that um, our healthcare system uh, needs help. Um, we also know that there's plenty of gaps in healthcare, whether it be from an access perspective or whether it be from a provider perspective. So I don't think what CVS Health is doing is any different than what um, other organizations are doing to try to address some of those gaps. And I think that um, CVS Health, uh, we've got a broad footprint um, across the country, over 11,000 um, CVS uh, stores and pharmacies that are in the communities where people are um, in the, in the um, more immediately are really looking to receive their care. And so I think using that footprint um, with our uh, 1,100 minute clinics and our pharmacies and our um, ability to meet patients where they are in the community, I think we can help with some of the challenges, some of the hurdles that exist in the healthcare environment right now. Beyond the 1,100 outlets that you have, uh, I noticed it on your website that with the Minute Clinic video, uh, the video visit, and uh, coming out soon, the online visits, there's some exciting new things that you're working on. Uh, tell us a little bit more about those. Yeah, no, great. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. Um, that rounds, that certainly is another component of uh, our key value propositions to, to create, to, um, to create ex affordable, accessible, quality care. And so when we think about the telehealth and our telehealth offering, our uh, video visits, um, that is just another um, uh, component to our model which allows patients the ability to access care when they want it and when they need it. So we don't have minute clinics in every state, and we don't have minute clinics uh, in every CVS store. And so we thought the, uh, our virtual care option would allow um, patients that um, want to receive care that way or don't have uh, other options um, to uh, have an avenue for uh, getting care in a quality way um, that has many of the same um, pillars that we have in place for the minute clinics, and we just leverage those to create this model. So that's interesting, right? So one use case of your video visit is that I'm living in a rural area or in a state that for whatever reason doesn't have a minute clinic near me, and so you can basically provide me a virtual visit. But we could also imagine that the virtual visit lets you do some things that in your current staffing model with one nurse practitioner basically per retail clinic, you cannot do right now, right? Because on, on the virtual visits, you could, have, you, could, you could have physicians if you wanted. Um, how, how do you think about those? Yeah, no, I think those are all possibilities. So I think the most important thing was to um, uh, launch the video visits and the platform and to, to successfully deliver care. We have a full quality program that we have in place right now where we do chart reviews on all of these visits. We look at patient experience on these visits, and um, we make sure that the quality of care is at the level it needs to be. I would say from there, we'll continue to expand, and, I, and then I think the platform can be leveraged for many things. So to your point, we could think about um, different types of providers and access to different types of services, whether they, you know, whether they be um, uh, minute clinic services, primary care services, or in other areas. We could also think about using that platform to bring into the clinic uh, different types of providers. Um, we could also think about using that platform across the CVS Health for different um, types of services that support some of our different areas of business, which include, could include pharmacy, could include our um, quorum and home infusion, et cetera. So we see this as um, an area that uh, that uh, is an enabler to the future and um, is something that allows us to 
continue to meet our value propositions for our patients, which are convenient, accessible care that's affordable and of high quality. One thing I've seen in the retailing sector more broadly is that when a company goes omni-channel, meaning like an online channel and a direct in-store channel, there are really various ways of doing this, right? You can either use the traditional channel as a fulfillment for online, or you could have like really two distinct channels. When I would use one of your video visits, will I get Will I talk to a dedicated video nurse, if you let me say it this way, or will I be connected with a store that is currently having access capacity? So right now, um, we have a separate set of providers that are doing the video visits, and we will evolve as we learn more about the when the demand is, what type of services, the, topopi- the um, geographies where these uh, visits are um, in most demand. I think we'll use that information to then get to the next level of of conceivably using some of our existing um, providers uh, that may have excess capacity. I mean, I know this type of data might be confidential, and so, uh, Sharon, feel free to wave your hands here on the radio. Uh, Can you give us a sense of the scale of the video visits right now? Are we talking about 1%, 5% of this uh, kind of retail visits that you have right now? Oh, it's a small percentage. We've only had this out for six weeks, and we're only in 12 states right now. So, And we we deliberately did that. As I said, um, our ability to pull the data and to look at the quality of, of visits and the experience for patients is the most important piece before we scale this broadly. So, no, it's a small number at this point. But we've been pleased with um, the, um, the uptake and uh, the learnings to date. Tell us about regulation when you're doing something like this. So, uh, I mean, especially there are strong state regulations on something like healthcare. I noticed that you're not with your video visits in, in Pennsylvania. Could I basically video you and, and just tell you that I'm in California and you take care of me? Or are there kind of real strong regulatory guidelines that make sure that basically you're not practicing uh, out of a specific state? Yeah, so we have, um, it's a great question, and yes, we need, to, we need to adhere to all the state regulations. And so in the beginning of the visit, video visit, um, we have questions, and we actually also have the ability to um, get a sense of where the patient is so that we are not delivering care in a state that we cannot, uh, that we're not, you know, we're not uh, able to at this point. So the Achilles was any uh, kind of the uh, traditional delivery model of a service, as you mentioned, access and with access comes friction either through waiting times or to getting to the store. Um, Telemedicine has this promise that when I need it, I just press a button on my phone. Um, That creates convenience for the patient, but it it, it does make capacity planning a whole lot more complicated. Do you have a sense from, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you gave kind of a capacity planning uh, even with the early data you gave, even before you launched, you gave this some thought. Do you have a sense whether the type of needs follow similar kind of demand curves than the ones on that you see retail, or is this online channel just behaving very differently? Um, you know, we're, it's a little too early to tell. We certainly have learned from other folks that are um, that are in the telehealth world and have been for a little while. Um, so I think we're a little bit still in a, in a wait-and-see mode on that. Um, you know, I think that um, we know that some care will shift, and we're okay with that because I think it it is it gets back to meeting patients where they are and where their needs are. So um, I think the other thing is, as you may well know, telehealth in general has not taken off. The utilization is still very low, um, and so our hope with having a national program. Um, that um, is anchored into uh, CVS Health and some of the other offerings that we have, our hope is that we will see the utilization go up um, in regards to telehealth in general, um, and uh, we'll be able to learn from that. But still too early for us to have a sense of what the trends are. Sharon, what we've often seen in disruption cases in other industries is that companies that once they have established a beachhead in a particular industry, they're, they're moving up market. They, they were in the old days just able to do the simple things. If I'm thinking, well, Toyota started selling cheap cars in the U.S., but now they're selling with a Lexus, a premium car. Could you see yourself using your infrastructure, your analytics capability to move towards more complex indications than what you have in the Minute Clinic right now? Well, I think from the inception of Miniclinic and the acquisition, we have, I think my colleagues will tell me that we started out doing, you know, uh, 25 diagnoses. Um, and we have evolved every year 
to um, uh, to increase that scope. Um, I think now we're up to probably um, uh, about 90% of the primary care diagnoses. Um, and I think when we started, we were below 25%. So I think that evolution has been happening, and it's not just a clinic phenomenon in many of the other both retail health centers and urgent care centers. I think the other thing we have to keep in mind is 50% of our patients that come in uh, to us don't have a primary care provider. And so people are seeking care in different settings where they have access, where they can afford it, and where it works for them. And so we have patients that come back to us multiple times that don't have PCPs and uh, you know may have a elevated blood pressure or something to that nature. And so, you know, at this point, we do two things. One, um, with every patient that comes in that doesn't have a PCP, we print out a list of PCPs in the area and we let them know we're not their PCP and we urge that they um, uh, go to uh, get a PCP or we try to help them to do that. With these patients that keep coming back over and over again that have uh, an elevated blood pressure or uh, A1C or something like that, um, we have in the last year... Um, expanded our services to be able to diagnose, um, not only to screen, but to diagnose if they um, are diabetic or hypertensive, and to, again, try to get them into um, uh, care of a PCP, um, but also are helping them manage their, um, their chronic. Uh, so I think that's a great example of our expanding our care well within the scope of a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant but also um, really trying to meet the needs of patients that are coming in and are not seeking care with a PCP for whatever reason. Now, you mentioned the underutilization of telemedicine. One example that I've seen in ICU settings is where basically the ICU used the physician at mm. a tele location to kind of bring in that extra expertise. Could you imagine a need for that where you have basically some access to a tele doc where you are seeing something in the clinic that is getting to the top of the license of your experienced nurse practitioners? Yeah, no, we could get to that. I mean, right now we have a collaborating physician structure in place for all of our nurse practitioners and our, our physician's assistants, so they have a physician that they can call, uh, especially if there's uh, a question about the care or something in our clinical guidelines. So we have that in place where we, um, uh, and then I could see, yes, that could be a platform in the future um, just because it would enable that conversation uh, in a more, um, uh, uh, a more virtual way. So we don't have plans right now. We're going to rely on our collaborating physician structure that we currently have, and we'll see where we go with that. Exciting. Sharon, last question. What does the future hold for Minute Clinics? What's going to be, if we look at another five years, ten years down the road, how will Minute Clinics have evolved? I think Minute Clinic will continue to uh, contribute to meeting the uh, or um, overcoming the gaps in care. And so I think we will continue to have a presence in the community delivering high-quality care where, um, in a convenient way where patients live and where they want to receive care. And I think we will continue to develop partnerships and utilize technology to um, advance our model. Says Sharon Vitti, the Senior Vice President and Executive Director at CVS Minute Clinic. Thank you so much, Sharon. Uh, you've been listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio here, powered by the Wharton School. If you want to have access to some of our old episodes, check out our website, workoftomorrow.com. At this point, all I have left to do is thank my producer, Matt Tetz, for his wonderful support. We hope you can join us again this coming Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Christian Terbisch, and on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.